is Genesis 2, 18, 21 to 25, and Ephesians 5, 32. The Lord, in, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Ephesians 5.32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ in the church. Please remain standing as we pray for the message. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would breathe on Pastor Kyle as he speaks your word to, to us this morning. We ask that you would open our eyes to hear your word and that it would be life-changing for each and every one in this room. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. God um, had to make women uh, attractive to men, so that's why he made them out of ribs. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> that was good. All right. It's good to see everybody this morning. God bless you all. Um, I love to be gathered on Sunday mornings with the church. Um, and not just on Sunday mornings, but to just live life together and to get to know you all and to serve Christ together, um, to bear each other's burdens, um, to weep with you, to rejoice with you. Um, it's been um, a wonderful uh, experience here. This past year, we moved, this past week, excuse me, we moved into this location and, um, three years ago. So we've been here about three years now. And um, it's been a wonderful experience to be able to grow as a church and to um, um, witness Christ to our community and give the gospel to them. And, um, and we got some exciting things coming up this summer that we're going to be able to enjoy even more opportunities to share our faith um, and, and do that in ways that hopefully we see just produce fruit and, um, in different ways. Now, in past sermons, uh, we're, we're, if you've noticed, we've been on this uh, text in Genesis for um, four or five weeks now. And um, it's been a really great um, a joy to be in those these sermons because we, we've been really talking about marriage, uh, the institute of marriage as it's defined in the early chapters of Genesis. And um, this is going to be our last week dealing with uh, marriage, the marriage subject in particular. We're going to be moving on um, in the text of Genesis. Um, so, But it's been a really great treat for me to be able to teach these sermons. I hope they've been encouraging to you. Uh, marriage, of course, is a, an issue that most of us have to um, face at some point, either directly or indirectly. And um, it usually has a dramatic, dramatic effect on our lives, even if we've never been married. And uh, um, in, the, in that sense, perhaps you had parents that were, and it wasn't a happy one, or maybe it was a happy one. So we, under, we all can understand, I think, and appreciate the importance of this subject. Um, 
In past sermons, you might have talked, you've heard me talk about the wedding at Cana. If you don't know about the wedding at Cana, um, and you're new to the Bible, um, there's a, a scene where Jesus Christ is sort of introducing himself um, to the world, and his ministry is starting. Um, he hasn't performed any miracles yet. He's been baptized by John the Baptist, <clears throat> but there has been really no, no major teachings or miracles that he's performed. And the first miracle he performs is at the wedding at Cana. Um, and it was at this wedding that Jesus um, didn't perform his first miracle of mercy, which you might have expected, maybe um, healing the sick or rising the dead or some, someone fell and he healed them or something tragic was happening. It wasn't so serious. It wasn't so much a miracle of mercy. He didn't do this. Now, his first miracle was to revive a dying party. <laughs> it's bewildering, isn't it? If you know anything about Jesus, about the Gospels, it just would be, it's just sort of strange that the very first miracle he does is to change water to wine, to get a wedding going that was starting to die because they started running out of food and, and, and drink. Jesus is the Lord of the festival. <laughs> now, that's a Jesus we can embrace, right? You know, like, that's, that's, some of, that's probably the, the, the Jesus the rest of the world wants. You know, change my water to wine. I'll take that. Um, but Jesus, the Lord of the festival, Lord of the party, what, what's going on? And not just any party, a wedding. And this is why this is important. This is why he does this. It's not simply to get a party going. He is introducing his purpose in coming as a man to begin with. He's introducing the reason why the second person of the triune God took on flesh. Who, he who <clears throat> knew, never knew any sin, existed in eternity past. This was God in the flesh. Why did God become man and die on a cross? Well, this is an image. He's giving us an illustration of why he's doing this. It's not so much to heal sick people. It's something much more profound. It's not as simple as that. It's telling us the overarching purpose of his life, of his death, of his resurrection, and it re reveals to us the purpose of God's creating any of us to begin with. So this is really important, him turning water into wine. One, one scholar said that in Christ, we have the place where heaven meets earth, where heaven and earth kiss in Jesus Christ. The intersection of the creator and the created. In Christ, God is with us. You see, friends, he was getting a wedding going because his whole purpose in creating us as his image bearers is to be wed to us. And sin against God has divorced him. We've separated ourselves from him because of this. So Jesus returns so that this wedding feast can still happen, so that he can die for his bride and make her clean. In Christ, God is with us. Now, in, in our Genesis series, um, like I said, we've spent some time in chapter 2 discussing marriage in particular. We talked about the power of marriage, which is selfless sacrifice. You need to die for your spouse daily. That's the power of marriage. The defini definition of marriage is a covenant which is a promise made in the presence of God that is forever binding in this life. 
We talked about the priority of marriage, that there is no other human relationship or event or, or um, function that is more important than your spouse. The purpose of marriage we talked about is friendship, and the sacred union of marriage is um, sexual union. Now, we talked about these things in detail, and each have, has its own sermon, so if you've missed them, you can go back to them. But this morning, we're moving on to our final sermon from this text in Genesis 2, and we're going to talk about marriage as analogy. Marriage as analogy. And we take this, let me just say this very quickly. Marriage is like a visual aid for us, for something else. It's an analogy. It's supposed to teach us something about something else that's more important. Does that make sense? Marriage is an analogy. Now, we take this from the very fact that humanity, according to Genesis 1, was created as an image bearer of God. That means we're supposed to imitate him. None of the, the, the fish or the birds in the sky or any other creation are said to be created in his image. So mankind is supposed to mimic the creator, imitate the creator. So if he tells us that we're to be married, which he does in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 1, that's, that means that there's something about God with us, that there's a, there is a marriage that's happening in God's very nature with his creation that we're supposed to imitate with each other. So earthly marriage is reflecting something divine, something heavenly. It's pointing to something else. It's not the end in itself. There's something, something bigger, something better. It's precisely the purpose of God's creating us to begin with. That God and you would be one. Isn't that incredible? All our lives, we seek a companion to be one with them in body and soul. What we're really looking for is God himself. He made you want that because he wants to show you that what you really want is him Everything you see in Genesis 2, the Ephesians, the Ephesians checked, um, text that we just read, points to this. He unpacks the significance of this, um, and Paul does in Ephesians 5. Everything that he says about marriage equates to Christ's relationship with his people. Everything you see in Genesis 2 or anywhere in Scripture that has anything to do with human marriage, what it's really about, is about your relationship with God. That's what it's really about, okay? <clears throat> when you look at marriage, we learn things about Jesus we never would have known without it, and vice versa. When we look at Jesus, we learn things about marriage we never would have known. That's, what, that's the significance of this and the implication. So when you look at marriage, you learn about Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you learn about marriage. Isn't that fantastic? So let's talk about this. What do we learn about marriage? What does marriage teach us about our relationship with Jesus Christ? And vice versa. What does our relationship with Jesus Christ teach us about marriage? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The, the very first thing I want to unpack for us, number one, is that marriage teaches us about our ultimate need. Marriage teaches us about our ultimate need. Scripture says, and we've read this over and over again, it is not good for man to be alone, to be without a woman, without a wife. It's not good for humankind. What does this teach us about God? 
it's not good for you to be without God. Right? Not simply aware of him. I think he's there. He, we all of us must have come from some, like a general type of vague knowledge. That's not what this is talking about. It's not good for you to be estranged from God. It's not good for man to not be one with God, in intimate union with God. You see, I know about the president, but I don't know him. You see, I know he exists. I kind of know what his values are. I've listened to him a few times on TV, but I'm not his friend. I don't know him. He doesn't invite me to his cookouts. I'm sure he's got a golden grill, but he doesn't invite me. Because I, I know him, but I know of him, I know about him, but I don't know him. You see, friends, it's not good for us to just have a simple awareness that there might be a God out there or that there is a God out there. You see, God created you for more than that. He created you to come to his cookouts. He created you not only to do that, but to be married to him. You see, that's what Paul means in Ephesians 5. This is a mystery right? It's a mystery. You see, married to God, that's weird. What are you trying to say? Like, it's not the same as a man and a woman's marriage. That's meant to de- depict something else. It's a mystery that we're, we're meant to be one with God, united to him, right? So don't think in terms exclusively of human marriage, but friends, that's what God has created us for, to be one with him. Amen? Humankind was meant to leave their father and mother to be one with their wife, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. That means it's the same thing with God. We are to demote, this is what this means, all of the other created things, aspirations and desires, need a demotion. If marriage is the most important human relationship in in your life, that means that God has to be the most important relationship in your life. You see? So all the other created things need a demotion. They're not as important as we make them. That's what that means. But it's our inability to do this. You see, we don't do this. We promote the created thing. Our status, how much money we make, who we're married to, the the kind of car we drive or the house we live in. We promote all of these things. We worship them, the, the, we, we worship the created thing rather than the creator, and that's exactly our malady. We divorce God and we unite to these foreign wives, as scripture um, pronounces it. It's the source of our misery, it's the source of our brokenness, it's the source of our discomfort. That is our sin in general. We have rejected God and worshiped his created thing. And friends, you were not created for this purpose. You don't plug into that. If human marriages thrive in selfless love and prioritizing that relationship over all all others, being united to the other person, so, friends, are we made whole and happy when united to our good God. Amen? And we can say with David, the psalmist, right? Listen to what he says. I rejoice with those who said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Now, what's he talking about? He's not talking about simply going to church like we might understand it. The house of the Lord for David was the actual, real presence of God. 
It was the glory of God that rested on the tabernacle, the tent, the meeting place. He says, I rejoiced when I, get, when I got to see my bridegroom. That's the point. That's what he said. Joy fills my heart. Not when I get to skip stones or slay giants. Not any of those things, friends. I rejoiced when they said to me, oh, let's go to the presence of the bridegroom. At his right hand, he says, there are pleasures forevermore. Friends, when you're in a healthy marriage, you all can, if, you, if you've ever been married, think of times where your marriage was thriving. Wasn't it wonderful to be at their right hand? Now, I know we all have experiences sometimes when marriages fall apart and we sin against each other. They aren't so lovely. But just try to remember those wonderful moments with your spouse, if you had any. And think of the fact that it brought you pleasure and joy and fullness and happiness. Well, friend, at the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore. Be at his right hand. <clears throat> we read um, that a broken marriage, oh, excuse me, we've said that a broken marriage can break everything else in your life. Isn't that true? When your marriage is falling apart, it just has this way of touching Every other thing, too, your children, your work, all sorts of things start to get affected. Well, likewise, we should expect that to be far from God is going to bring with it a certain weight in our lives. My bones, David said, wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You see, that's what it's like at times when your marriage is falling apart, isn't it? But isn't it true, friends, that even when your marriage is fine, sometimes you feel like that? And could it be that you're far from God? To be far from God is to have your, your strength sapped. This is the, re the reality of it. We groan day and night as in the heat of summer. You see, friends, marriage teaches us that that. Our most important and ultimate need is God himself. The second thing that marriage teaches us is about redemption. Okay, That's a fancy word that maybe go, might go over some people's heads. But redemption simply is about how we're saved as people. Okay, and Let me explain saved even. So the Bible says that God is good and holy and righteous. And that in relationship with him, there's law. There's a law, just like in your relationship with your husband or your wife. If you cheat on your wife or your husband, there's a law there. Something bad's going to happen to that relationship, whether you like it or not. See, that's what happened. We sinned against God. We broke his relational law, and because of it, it created a separation from us. And that's the misery that we carry around with us. Redemption, salvation, is Jesus coming and making it right. He pays the penalty he gets punished instead of us. That's why he died on a cross for our sin. The anger of God towards our law-breaking was put on Jesus. The death we deserve to die, he died so that God's anger was satisfied in Christ. That's what it means that we've been redeemed. So we are saved, we are redeemed, we're rescued, not by our own efforts or work, but by the work of another, Jesus Christ. We are rescued not by becoming better people, but because Jesus died for us. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Our good works is a thankful response. It's the fruit of what he did for us 
and our awakened eyes. Does that make sense? That's what it means that we've been redeemed in Christ, if you are indeed in Christ. Now, most people don't really believe in forgiveness. (laughs) You know that? We remember, we remind each other constantly about past injuries. We do this sometimes for the rest of our lives. And the reason we do this is we think that if we don't hold on, we're just going to get hurt again. We're going to get abused again. We're going to get manipulated, manipulated again. And therefore, we're just going to get crushed again, right? So we don't really forgive because we want to be safe from harm. But did you know that in marriage, you need to do the exact opposite? It's the, the, exact, it's the inability to not forgive that will actually crush you. You find the exact opposite. If you don't forgive, the marriage will certainly fail. You want to know why? Because we all sin against each other. And if you can't forgive, if you can't, ta- if you can't die on the cross like Jesus, so to speak, if you can't save that spouse by grace through faith, you're just going to make them pay for the rest of their lives. Right? You're going to expect that they earn your favor. And God does not do that with us. We don't earn God's favor. He gives his favor to us freely by grace. And friends, you need to do that in marriage, whether you know Jesus or not. That has to happen if marriage is going to be healthy. Dr. Keller says that in marriage for the first time, you learn that you cannot be saved by works. (laughs) Anyone who's married, you might not know anything about Jesus or even have heard the Bible, you know that if, you, if you're married, you can't be saved by works in that marriage. In other words, if you sin against your spouse, there is only one way to have that sin removed, and that's if they forgive you. That's if they take the injury. That's the only way. Marriage is the drama of salvation continually played out over and over again. Peace and harmony until someone decides to live for their own glory, right? Marriage starts out pretty good for some. There's peace and harmony and love and joy and happiness until one or both people decide to start living for their own glory. So they start sinning against the laws of the relationship. And the result of that is estrangement, separation, hostility, and difficulty. Can I get an amen? Right? So how do you restore this once this happens? By keeping a log of offenses? Try that one. It can only be, there's not enough notebooks, right. This this can only be, be restored through the process of redemption. That is, the one who has been injured needs to take the injury. They need to die for them in their place. And the person who has been injuring needs to repent. They need to acknowledge their sin before, remember David, until I acknowledged my sin before you, my bones were broken and I was crushed, right? Repentance, redemption, and reconciliation. The only way that you can be restored in marriage is through this process. And it must happen in all marriages for it to be happy and healthy and long-lasting. The offended person elects to love. 
you decide that in spite of the injury against you, that you are going to love the other person in spite of what they've done. And they decide, this is what you do. You take the injury. You do it without retaliation, and you do it without payback. Because this is what God has done for us in Christ. When God saves you, he elects to love you. He elects to save you. And he doesn't make us dance for it or climb mountains for it or wear funny hats. Right? He doesn't do any of these things. He says, for by grace you are saved through faith. Simply believe. Simply trust. And that's the process of our of our um, restored relationship with Christ. It's got to be the, the process in a healthy marriage. In the Christian's relationship with God, re- redemption happens because, God's, because of God's electing love. He has been offended. God has been offended by our sin. And we are guilty. But he puts away his wrath from us and he puts it on his son Jesus. That's what he does. He covers our sin and puts it on Christ. He reaches out to you because he wants you. So in marriage, who is the sin put on? It's put on yourself. When you choose to forgive, you choose to pay the debt rather than the one who has injured you. It doesn't pay back and it doesn't revile. And you know what happens? Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Happiness. That's what that word blessed means. Happiness. And why is this person happy whose sins are forgiven? Because the injury is not counted against them, and the relationship is restored. You see, friends, when someone sins against you, there is no way that your relationship with that person will be happy and whole until you forgive them. And also, it requires that the offender offender repents. You see, you can forgive someone without them repenting, but there cannot be reconciliation without them repenting. Both need to happen. You see, there needs to be forgiveness and there needs to be repentance, or the relationship is still broken, okay? The offender repents. And you know what repentance is? You've changed your mind about your role. You've changed your attitude. You don't make excuses, and you don't make demands. You know, I'm sorry I did this, but you know what you did? Isn't that usually how we begin our apologies? It's like, it's, it's almost like a blip in the conversation. It's, you start with that. It's, you know, I don't know what that is. You start with that. I'm, I'm sorry, but here's all the things you did wrong. <laughs> nice apology. Thank you. Um, repentance, real repentance. You know what it does? It grieves what we've done. It doesn't say, I did this because of you. That's what, we're going to get to this in weeks to come. But that's what Adam and Eve did. You know, yeah, I, I, I bit and I did this, but you know what? The woman you gave me, right? Or the man you gave me, or the serpent, they're all blaming other people except themselves. You know what repentance does? It blames yourself. It says there is no excuse. I've done what I've done. It's sin. It's wrong. 
And this is exactly what we see happening in the story in the New Testament of the prodigal son. You recall this story in the New Testament. The prodigal son is eating pig food. He, he pretty much took all his dad's money, took off, he's, and he starts living just a licentious and evil lifestyle. Finally, he blows all his cash, and now he's got nothing, so he's got to work. And he's eating pig food. And he come, the Bible says he comes to his senses, and he realizes what he's done. And he doesn't start scheming or trying to trick. You know, Dad, you know, if you were a better dad, you know, I wouldn't have wanted that money to begin with. Right? He doesn't blame shift. He doesn't start talking about his jerk older brother. Right? You know, he's always been su such a cocky guy and thinks he's so good. That's why, you know, you, you guys put all this pressure on me, and that's why I wanted to leave. But he doesn't do that. He says, I've sinned against you and against heaven. Without excuse, without pretense, that's repentance. The offender repents. And you know what happens? When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Friends, when we cannot repent, this is what we carry with us. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave me. You forgave the guilt of my sin. You see, in the story of the prodigal son, he blew all his dad's money. The dad didn't say, I'll forgive you with strings attached. You've got to go make that money back. You can come back, but start working. I gave you a million dollars. You've got to make that money back. You owe me. He didn't do that. You know what? Yeah, actually, he did the opposite. He took him back and said, here's more. Here's a calf. Here's more inheritance. You see, when the dad accepted him back into the family, it meant that whatever was left in the dad's account would go to him again when his dad died. Why do you think the brother was a little ticked off? <laughs> because his share just got smaller because the brother was forgiven. You see, friends, when the brother came back, that's what forgiveness is. It doesn't make you pay back. It's by grace through faith. So when this perfect marriage of repentance and forgiveness come together, the relationship is restored and life and joy and happiness remain or, or at least brought back. Electing love and repentance need to happen for there to be reconciliation, the union of two once estranged. Does that make sense? If marriage requires grace and repentance, then so does our relationship with God. God, the bridegroom, who loved you, created you, so that you would enjoy him forever. We've all sinned against him, been separated from his good relationship, and bids us to return through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, by grace. So whatever's in your hands, put it down and come to him. Number three, marriage teaches us about fruitfulness. Marriage teaches us about fruitfulness. In Genesis 2, we see a fruitful union. Adam covenants with Eve, physically, emotionally, and otherwise. They're intimately united and fruits produced. Wah, right? 
fruit, fruit between the man and the woman, out comes a baby, right? That's the fruit of the physical union of Adam and Eve, the covenant made together. Covenants produce fruit. What you covenant with, what you marry, produces fruit. Galatians chapter 5 tells us that our marriage to God produces fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. When we're married to God, we are born again. Our blind eyes are given sight. Our fleshly works are over, um, are, are overtaken by the works of the Spirit. The principle is simple. What you join with, you bear fruit with. What you join with, you bear fruit with. It is impossible to be married to Mr. or Mrs. A and be sleeping with Mr. or Mrs. B. You can't do it. You're marrying the other person at that point. That's why the Bible says that adultery cuts off the marriage. That's called adultery. The Mr. That, or the Mrs. that you join yourself to, that's the one you're going to bear fruit with, Right? That's the one you bear fruit with, and such is the case spiritually. If the works of the flesh are continually, as Christians, now I'm talking to Christians, if you find yourself continually working out the works of the flesh, is it possible that you've rejoined yourself to something besides God? We're not joined to God, but we start to join ourselves to created things. We're forgetting, even in our Christianity, that all we need is Him, that God is God and nothing else is God. So we start, we start toying with other false gods again, and our joy is robbed. We start producing the fruit of the flesh at that point, and not of the Spirit. So if we're not producing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, we're not putting ourselves in His full presence We're not taking our cares to him. We're not thinking his word and his promises. We're rehearsing all of the other stories around us. You know, it's true that we can technically be married to someone and maybe even in the same room, but far from them. How many people know that's true? All right. You don't got to raise your hand if your spouse is sitting right next to you. Right. But we we know that that's true. I shouldn't ask you to raise your hands. Um, but we can be technically married to someone, even in the same room, just, but just light years away from each other. It's like they're not even there. And why is this? It's either because we are actively sinning against them and refusing to turn from it. There's something we're holding on to, right, that we know it's wrong. Or maybe we're not forgiving them. They did something to us. And we are refusing to, to forgive, to take the injury. And what, that, what happens is it creates distance, doesn't it? So you're either sinning against them or not forgiving them. But ultimately, you've put something before them, haven't you? If you're sinning against them something, and you refuse to turn from it, that thing has become more important than them, right? Or vice versa, if you're not forgiving them, whatever they've done to you has become more important than they are. You see, either way, you've set up something that takes priority over them. So you're married. You are married, but it's dysfunctional. You're married, but it's dysfunctional. You know that can happen in your relationship with God. You can be saved and wed to God, but it's dysfunctional. 
because you don't think with him, you're not with him, you're not face to face with him. Maybe you're living in sin and you refuse to let it go or possibly an event happened in your life that you didn't want to happen and you're mad at God and you're not forgiving him, so to speak, and trusting him. You see, so you're in Christ, but you're not in fellowship with Christ. See, that can happen as it can happen in marriage, it can happen with us. It's like the difference of, you know, sitting side by side a person or embracing face to face. How many people have ever gotten to a fight with somebody? Yeah, okay. Now, you don't have to raise your hands for this one, but it's, you know, it's all true. We know you have. But um, if you're married, how many people have gotten to a fight with their, spot, with their spouse? Right, okay, okay. You know what I noticed when, when my, my wife and I are bickering? I don't look at her. I'm kind of like this. Or I'm, I'm like facing, she's over there, and I'm just talking. Right? What, do you guys do that too? Why is that? There's something about looking at a person that almost like invites affection and love. Doesn't it? You're looking at a person and you start realizing, oh, they're a person. But we don't do that. We don't look at each other. So so there are times in life where it's like that with God. You know, like God is on the side and we're just mad or we're living in sin and we can't look at him anymore. And what we got to do in marriage and in our relationship with Jesus is start to look at the person again. And that requires transparency. That requires confession of sin. That requires sometimes even forgiveness. Doesn't it? See, we've got to start looking at each other again. And when you do that, you start getting fruit again. You start producing fruit in marriage and in, re- in your relationship with Christ. And you know, when you produce fruit, think about this. When you're joined with Christ and you have a fruitful relationship with Christ, your salvation in Christ, it's not just you that is the benefactor. The fruit is far-reaching. It goes far beyond just the fact that we've been redeemed and saved. Other things are affected too. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Now, that's a long sentence, but just follow me. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Spirit sent from heaven. So he's saying, okay, in the Old Testament, we knew that, Jesus, that there was a promise that Jesus would come and save his people. He's saying, that's you. Like this is Peter talking to a church. That's you. And listen to these words. This redemption, the angels long to look. All of the angels, the Bible talks about the created angels, right? Ministering spirits this invisible world, are stretching their necks in glorious wonder over what happens with God's people. But there's more. In Romans chapter 8, all of creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, the church, the bride, to be saved. Why do they wait for this? Why do the birds and the mountains and the trees, what do they care? Well, let's see. 
for the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So not only are you saved, but the birds are saved, and the trees are saved, and the mountains, and the seas, and the oceans are saved. The galaxies are saved. Everything's restored in redemption. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that fantastic? You know, there's an old Jewish poem called the, Benedi- the Benedicite. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, <clears throat> but the Benedicite. This is what it says. Oh, all you works of the Lord, bless the Lord. Praise him and magnify him forever. O you angels of the Lord, bless the Lord. Praise him. Magnify him forever. O you heavens, all you powers of the Lord, you sun and you moon and you stars of heaven, bless the Lord. O you showers and dew, you winds and fire and heat, bless the Lord. You winter and summer, Praise him and magnify him forever. O you dews and frosts, frost and cold, ice and snow, bless the Lord. Praise him and magnify him forever. O you nights and days, light and darkness, lightnings and clouds, let the earth bless the Lord. You mountains and hills, green things upon the earth. O you wells and seas and floods. O you whales that move in the water, bless the Lord. Praise him and magnify him forever. You fowls in the air, you beasts and cattle, children of men, bless the Lord, praise him, and magnify him forever. O you people of God, O you priests of the Lord, O you servants of the Lord, you spirits and souls of the righteous, bless the Lord. O you humble and holy men of heart, let us bless the Lord, the Son, Bless him and magnify him forever. Why on earth would anyone tell a whale to bless the Lord and magnify him forever? Why would the mountains and the hills, the fowls, the clouds, this is so earthy, isn't it? There's nothing about heaven or spirits or angels or the life. This is very earthy. You know, God loves his creation. He didn't make it for us to pollute or destroy. He creates these things. That's why when we see them, there's almost this sense of God's presence. Even for someone who doesn't even know that he's there or have any faith at all. They're looking at a mountainside or even a storm and just in wonder about the great and vast world that we live in. When God's image bearer was cut off from his good purpose, so was the rest of creation. They were put, the creation was put in bondage. But the marriage, the redemption of God's people with Christ offers this not just to us, but to all created things. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage, bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. You know what heaven is? It's the presence of God in his creation. It's not us in some nebulous, some like funky place where there's no floor, right? And we're just kind of awake. 
Heaven is a recreated universe that is in God's presence continually without sin. That's what heaven is. It's here. It's here, but it's restored. It's redeemed. Clap your hands, O you peoples of the earth, all you hills and trees, all all you birds and fish, all you stars and galaxies, because Christ is coming and he has redeemed. Amen? You love the earth, God loves it more. He loves you more. I will say this, there's a balance to this. It's not created in the image of God. God loves you more than he loves the earth, but he loves this earth more than you do. He created it for his good pleasure and glory. Number four, our marriage to to Christ dethrones human marriage. This is important. Marriage to a person is not the most important thing in the world. (laughs) Let me just say that again, okay? Marriage to a person is not the most important thing in the world. We often get married because we sense something missing. But earthly marriage is only an image of the divine marriage, something better. Paul says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you're single, you have a unique opportunity to pay attention to that divine marriage in a unique way that others simply can't. Earthly marriage is just an image of divine marriage. If you don't recognize that the only reason you want to be married to a person is really because you're created to be married to your creator, what you're going to do is you're going to idolize marriage. And it will sting you and disappoint you and hurt you. Dr. Keller says again insightfully, that we idolize marriage, and we do this in two ways. The first way we do it is in marriage, when we're actually married. John Newton, um, when a, a reformed Puritan pastor, around the time that they um, abolished slavery in England, he was a slave owner, became saved. He wrote Amazing Grace, if you know that hymn. John Newton said that the biggest problem in marriage is idolatry. <laughs> Isn't this amazing? How, how we should just pay attention to this. You make the other person your savior. That's what idolatry is. The other person, that person, your spouse, is your savior. So I don't think my spouse is my savior. Well, you, well let's just kind of examine that for a moment. You expect that their love for you is what you need most. I know I'm okay if they think I'm okay. Right? This is what happens in marriage. And if they don't, you start to fall apart. And the marriage falls apart. So we put burdens on our marriage to make us completely happy. And then when, we, when it doesn't, we don't, you know what we do? We blame the person. We say, oh, I married the wrong person. If I had married that person, I'd still be happy. And that is an illusion. That's a lie. What you're doing is you're idolizing marriage, and you're going to take that with you to every single person you'll ever be with. And every single person is going to disappoint you. You put burdens on marriage to make, we put burdens on marriage to make us completely happy when marriage can never do that. We're going to demand more out of marriage than, than what that marriage can give us. The second way we idolize marriage is outside of marriage, okay? 
we feel we must be married. There's something wrong with us if we're not. We feel like maybe just failures or unlovely or unattractive or just fill in the blank. We need to be married. The attitude, this is, this is kind of like a sentence I underline in the meaning of marriage. It's, he says, the attitude that makes you feel life isn't worth living unless you're married is the same attitude that you, will make you feel that life make you feel that life isn't worth living in this marriage. I'm going to read that again because I messed it up. <laughs> the attitude that makes you feel that life isn't worth living unless I'm married is the same attitude that will make you feel life isn't worth living in this marriage. In other words, you know, I just need to be married if I'm going to be happy. Let me restate this. I need to be married if I'm going to be happy. The, that, the same attitude it, it, when you're in marriage is, I need to leave this marriage if I'm going to be happy. <laughs> you know, that mentality is just going to follow you for the rest of your life. And you need to dethrone marriage. You need to recognize that you are married so that you can love the other person and not yourself. That's what God calls us to in marriage. That's what God calls me to in marriage. Now, I'm a monumental failure at this. Ask my wife. But we, we all are, to some degree. And what needs to happen? Well, we said it before, the process of redemption. We need to eat humble pie. We need to repent and forgive. That's what, that's what it's going to take. Singleness in marriage has burdens um, that the other doesn't, right? It, there are burdens in singleness, and there are burdens in marriage. There are wonderful parts of being single, and there are wonderful parts of being ma- married. But it's foolish to think that either one, singleness or marriage, is going to fulfill you completely. It won't. Only Christ will. Marriage to Jesus first teaches us that replacing him with your spouse is to your own peril. Okay? Finally, number five, it shows us why sex belongs in marriage only. Our relationship to Jesus shows us why sexual union is for marriage and marriage only. The marriage supper of the Lamb teaches us why sex is for marriage only. Let me explain to you why. You can't go to God through Christ and say, save me completely, complete me, forgive me my sins, but don't make a covenant with me. You can't do that. God saves us by the covenant. It is in the union, it's in our marriage to Christ that we are saved. Does that make sense? He cannot save us without, that, without there being a union. We can't have God save us while we're continually worshiping other gods. It doesn't work like that. The covenant is what saves you. And it's the same thing with sex and marriage. If you say, I want sex, but I don't want a covenant, you're not committed to that person. You say, oh, no, 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 no. Um, I don't sleep with someone unless I'm committed to them. That's not true. That's just simply not true. If you don't get married to them, you're not committed to them. Why would someone not marry another person? Let's just think about it. Why, why if you're single in here, pretend you're single again, right? Some of you wish you were, but um, pretend, <laughs> right, pretend you're single again. Why would some of you think like, well, I don't know if I want to marry, I'm not going to marry that person. Why, why would that thought ever cross our mind? Because we're not ready. We don't know if we want to be committed to that person 
in particular. That's a wise thing. We don't just marry someone because it's moving, right? We, <laughs> maybe some of you do. Um, we don't marry someone because we're not ready to make that commitment yet. And at times, that's wise. We want to be sure it's the right person. And if they're not, if, if they're not the right person, it gives us the freedom to leave. That's why we don't get married. We want the freedom to leave. So if you don't want to marry a person, it almost always means that you're not sure yet if you want to stay or leave, right? To have sexual union with a person under that pretense, you are basically saying that you want physical marriage, but not the other kind, right? You want physical union, physical intimacy, physical oneness, but you don't want emotional, you don't want financial, you don't want anything else except that part of it. That's not commitment, friend. That is not commitment. You know what that is? Selfish. It's selfish. A covenant says, I am yours in every way forever. I'm naked in front of you in every way forever. Not just one way. If that's true in our relationship with God, it's also true in marriage. Someone once asked, do you remember the first time that you had sex before marriage, if that's you? You were totally uncovered, totally vulnerable, totally unified, do you remember how incongruous it was that you were one like that, but then just walked away from each other? It's not the way it was supposed to be, and we all know it. It's a monstrosity. Friends, if you've ever been in that position, you know that's true. If to be joined to Christ is to not be joined to any other God, then to be joined to someone is to imply that you will not be joined to any other person but them. You know, in a, in a marriage, I've done a bunch of marriages now <clears throat> um, since the time I became a pastor. Um, in a wedding, um, a couple goes through, just in the ceremony, they call it a declaration of consent. Um, and that's different from the wedding vows. In a declaration of consent... Um, the, the bride and the groom are looking at the pastor, and that's the I do's. Do you take this woman to be lawfully wedded wife, et cetera, et cetera? I do, and they're saying it to me, right? And then the vows, they're looking at each other. I, I you know, whoever, take you, whoever, to be my lawfully. So one is to me and one is to the other. Why are they talking to me? Well, the, the, it's a symbolism. They're making a promise to God. See? I do. So that's the declaration of con consent. The two are telling God that they pledge certain things, to love, to cherish, in good times and in bad. They tell God and the other person, I do. And you know what that sort of implies? They're saying, I don't, to every other person in that room. I do for this person, but I don't owe any of you this. Right? Right? When, Ma when, when Mandy married Kyle, I was saying no to every woman on this planet. 
Sorry, ladies. <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. And she, likewise, when she said I do to, to Kyle, she was saying I don't to every other man on this earth. You see, that's the union. That's real commitment, right? That's real commitment. And that's what sexual union is supposed to symbolize, a complete transparency and commitment to the other person for as long as you both shall live. And friends, that's what you get with God. That's what marriage points to in your relationship to Jesus, that God is absolutely committed to you in your life, in this life and in the next. He alone is God. There is no other. We will have no other gods before us. You see, every day I have to ask myself the question, am I trusting in something more, loving something more than Jesus Christ. So we need to just thank God this morning for the better marriage, the marriage to come. Amen? And let's just really try to see the analogy of marriage, what marriage, human marriage, points to in our relationship with God and vice versa, that the power of marriage is selflessness, it's death, in marriage. Likewise, in our relationship to Christ, Christ died for us and we die with him, Romans chapter 6. The definition of marriage is a covenant, a promise made in the presence of God himself that is permanently binding. God makes a covenant with us, his people, and sends his son to die for us so that covenant can be fulfilled. The priority of marriage is that your spouse is more important than any other relationship and in our relationship with God, that, that takes first seat to any other earthly pursuit. The purpose of marriage is friendship, love. Our purpose in Christ is friendship with God and love with God. And finally, the ultimate union of marriage and physical marriage is sexual union. With God, we are one in Christ. Amen. I hope that this uh, series was encouraging to you. And if you don't know Christ, would you bow your heads with me?